If you would open to Mark's gospel with me this morning, we're going to be in chapter 6 looking at another very popular, uh, very popularly depicted event in the life of Jesus, an event which takes place immediately after uh, where we left off last week. So I hope you don't mind that I sort of remind us of how we began. Last week, we began to unpack an idea, an idea that we, you and I, have a view of Jesus that, that, that probably is not the full Jesus according to Scripture. That's why we're studying this gospel, to confront ourselves, our image of Jesus with the true Jesus, the one whom Mark is focused on declaring king of this kingdom that he is ushering in with his life. And only he can do this, Mark says, because he really is the son of God. That's an amazing set of sentences, isn't it? But I think Mark's purpose of communicating this is relevant for us this morning to consider just as much as it was for the catacomb church in Rome who it was intended for originally. Once we realize who the real Jesus is, and I don't know that we do that in one week or two weeks, but the more we come to realize who Jesus actually is, then we must search our heart again and ask a different set of questions. Am I amazed by him or do I have faith in him? And to what degree? I'm grateful that in such a small congregation like this, I I know that most of you or all of you are saints, that you are all in the faith, that that this is, uh, uh, according for your salvation, a faith that you have. But I'm asking you to search your life with these questions. Who do I believe Jesus is? Is that the Jesus we see in Mark? What places in my heart is my life preaching to me amazement but not faith? Do I live as someone who is captivated fully? Or do I live as someone who is just simply amazed by his capabilities? This morning, our text presents to us the difference between the two, amazement and faith. And it is my hope that the Spirit of God would make abundantly clear to us this morning. But more than that, we will see something else at play in these verses. Something that was sort of in the theme of last week that carries over into this week. We'll see Mark continue the description of a soul-satisfying Jesus. A Jesus who is all will ever need. So I've tagged our time today, Amazing Faith. Because there is a faith in this text that can only come from Jesus. A faith that is both wonder and worship. A faith that is both amazement and trust. So would you stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word. And then would you pray for me as I pray for you. So together we can hear from God this morning. I have the text up here for you. If you uh, don't have your Bible. But if you do, then you can read Amongst yourselves, starting in verse 45, it reads as this immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida 
while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we come to be fed by your word this morning. Once again, may it sharpen us. May it penetrate the deepest places of our hearts. May we delight in your instruction. Be encouraged by your message, corrected by your care. Some of us come this morning full of amazement, but not full of belief. Some of us come with varying degrees of both. Would you help us this morning? Would you speak to us? Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? Would you gift the congregation as its hearers attentiveness And grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh Yep. Last Thursday, we weren't with you all, and I'm sorry about that. My family and I, we went with some friends to SeaWorld. I have a weird relationship with SeaWorld. Um, This is a personal thing. I'm not telling you to feel this way. But this is my dilemma. I love the animals there. Like, I, I love learning about them, get to see them up close. And that Thursday, we were up close more than I've ever been. I don't know what they're doing different over there, but I felt like there was encounters for sure. Um, but, but to see their majesty, that, that's what it is. It's, it's majesty uh, of some of those creatures. Some, not all. The sharks are terrible. I saw a moray eel too, and I'm pretty sure that's a product of the fall. That thing is disgusting. Um, but the other guys there, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I, there's just so much awe when I spend time there. I also don't know what exactly is the ethical dilemma, but it feels like there's one sometimes. For example, I cannot get over, I just can't, how we as humans have trained Somehow trained killer whales, murdering whales, assassin whales, to jump out, to do dog tricks. I, <laughs> look at this picture. I, got to, I took that picture. That's not amazing to you? He's like in the second row. Like, uh, I mean, the second, like, uh, look, man, I, 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 that will never not be both amazing and weird to me. That's just where I'm at. But it was during that Orca show that I, I was thinking about 
the size of these animals, the, the strength that they have, the intelligence, the absolute brilliance of God's design in creating them. I, I mean, there's truly an amazement that I feel when I'm watching these things. But listen, those are waters I could never swim in. <laughs> like, like in that water with those creatures, that's not a space for me. I have no faith. None at all in the orca caring for my well-being like I do amazement for this creature. I could never feel safe. I don't trust this animal to be what it is during the show while I'm in there with it. You understand what I'm saying? There is a difference, a disconnect between my faith and its ability to not see me as a toy and my amazement for all that it is. You see what I'm saying? Cool. I share this with you because our text this morning conveys a similar idea that there is a difference between amazement and faith. But where my illustration deals with something that makes no difference to our lives, our text here shows that the difference between amazement and faith in something or rather someone that makes all the difference in our lives. Some of you this morning, have an amazement of Jesus, but not a belief in him for you. A total, full belief in him for you. I know that sounds complicated, but let's let the text help us. Mark picks up immediately after, feed, after the feeding of bread and fish. As soon as that wraps up, Jesus quickly urges his disciples to get into the boat to go towards Bethsaida where, while Jesus dismisses the crowd. The urgency here is unmistakable in the Greek. It's a strong encouragement. It's as if one commentator puts it that there's some back and forth between Jesus telling them to go and them not wanting to go. Like how you have to express a strong encouragement to your children to go home after they've had too much fun at someplace else. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, that's sort of what's happening here. But something, there was something happening that was drawing the disciples' desire to stay. There is a demeanor among the crowd here that John's gospel gives us. It says in John chapter 6 of the same account, John chapter 6 verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, that's the feeding of the bread and the fish, he is Jesus, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. So once the meal was finished and all the people were amazed at what Jesus had done, they were also charged with fervor. They wanted to incite revolution, but not in the way Jesus had just exemplified to them. The disciples, they're drawn to this message. Instead of dispelling the crowd, they could easily fan the flame. And Jesus insists, forces them, essentially, to get in the boat and go while he deals with the crowd. We need to keep in mind that it is Jesus who commands the disciples to go out to sea. After the crowd is calmed, and sent away, Jesus goes to pray. This moment, this reaction to his works is new, right? We've never seen this before. Before, people wanted Jesus to heal, maybe cast out a demon or a legion. 
Maybe they'll sit and hear him teach. But revolution, to incite revolution, that's not what we've seen before. By force, that is not what we've seen before. This is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Undoubtedly, all these people will go back to their towns and their villages and their cities and tell what happened here through their lens. This creates in Jesus not the desire to get out and work, not to go from village to village and do damage control or image control. No, Jesus is compelled to fall to his knees and pray. Family, can we admire this about our Lord? Can we admire the posture he takes when trouble arises? Jesus is not quick to go into a fixing. He brings it before the Father in prayer. This is the second time we've seen Jesus in this scenario. At night, in a lonely place, disciples failing to understand the mission that's at work here and either a decision or a crisis at play before Jesus. There is a message for us, family, in the posture that Jesus takes, and it preaches to us faith, complete and utter faith in God. The idea to be slow to act, but to be quick in prayer is exemplified in Jesus's moment right now. I am reminded of my grandmother with texts like this. When I think of my grandmother in my mind's eye, there's one of two places she is in. She is either in the kitchen serving her loved ones or she is at her bedside on her knees in deep prayer with the father. We need a sort of abuelita faith, church, a faith that uh, comes to the father for every decision and in every moment not to act first, but to fall, to really fall before the father, to be led where Jesus would lead us to run, not to entertainment or content, music or podcasts or books, but to silence and solitude in the presence of God. This is the posture of both amazement and faith. Verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Mark's perspective shifts here a little bit. He moves from Jesus to the disciples. They're on this boat, but in a similar showing of nature, a windstorm picks up. You'll remember that the Sea of Galilee can be incredibly dangerous at night. These storms can be so dangerous that experienced fishermen who spent their lives fishing this very sea are fearful of their lives. Jesus finishes praying and he looks out onto the sea and he can still see the disciples. They haven't made much ground. If we use the context of how much time has passed, it's nearly eight hours. Eight hours of rowing has passed and these boys have gone nowhere. The wind and the waves are that bad. The situation has moved from merely difficult to dangerous as the storm continues to intensify. They are facing angry waters near impossible headwinds. But how how did they get themselves in this mess? 
What would cause them to be in such a stressful environment? This predicament they are in is not due to disobedience. This predicament they are in is not due to rebellion or ignorance. No, there was nothing they did to deserve literally this situation. Nothing but obedience. Have you ever felt like this, family? Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever been in the storm or in the darkness of the night, tired, exhausted, confused, discouraged? Why is all of this happening to me right now? What did I do to deserve this? I was obedient, Lord. You told me to go and I went. You told me to do and I did. And now I am here in this storm. There has to be a saint in this room who has felt this way before, this kind of frustration. I don't know what I did to get here. Why am I here? That's fine. I'll preach to myself. The truth is, church, the disciples are here because Jesus made it so. Jesus made it so. This is exactly where he wants them to be. They are in this storm fighting against the sea and the waves at the command of Jesus. It's obedience that brought them here. We seem to have a good grasp on not holding to a prosperity theology. But we don't have a good enough theology of suffering. Sometimes... Obedience is going to get you to be uncomfortable. Sometimes obedience to Jesus is going to put you in some places you don't want to be. Sometimes obedience is going to put you in the place of trial and pain, just like obedience brought Abraham to the mountaintop with Isaac, just like obedience made Lot a widow, just like obedience made Joseph a slave, just like obedience put Daniel in a den full of lions, just like obedience brought John before Herod, just like obedience brought Jesus to the cross. I'm just saying, church, there's a reason for every season and a revival in every trial. Sometimes you didn't cause the storm, but obedience took you there because Jesus needs to meet you there for your growth and his grace. Sometimes Jesus will take you where you didn't intend to go in order to produce in you what you cannot produce on your own. That's grace. That is the grace of God. Grace isn't always cute. Grace isn't always this beautiful, sweet baby name we give to our children. Sometimes God's grace is a bitter cup, but a cup nonetheless. Sometimes grace is less juice and more wine. There's a strength to it. There's a sting to it. There's something in this cup that sugar cannot disguise. Grace isn't always deliverance at just the right time. Sometimes the thing you need deliverance from is an act of grace. If this ain't for anybody, I know this is for me. This This is what is happening in this moment. Jesus is aware of the hearts of these men. He knows how self-righteous they can be, how self-centered, how self-protecting, how self-assured they are. Jesus got them in this storm for a reason. The question these disciples need to ask, the question we need to ask family is do we have eyes to see it? Do we have eyes to see the grace of God in the uncomfortable? Do we have eyes to see the glory of God in our trial, in our confusion, in our exhaustion? Do we have eyes to see where our faith 
is lacking. The text says, Jesus saw them struggling and he came to them walking on, walking on the sea. The man is walking. <laughs> the man is walking on water. There's a desensitization, desensitization that we all have right now. None of us are as amazed at this as we should be. We should be falling out of our chairs. There is an actual living, breathing, probably near 200-pound man walking in the sea during a storm. Not running like a lizard. Walking, slow walking. It's amazing. I'm just saying. It is amazing. If all, if all Jesus ever wanted to do was deliver the disciples from their distress, what could have he done? From the shore, he could have spoken a word. He could have spoken. We've seen him calm worse storms than this with just a word. That's not the point here. Jesus has performed miracle after miracle in front of and even through these men. It's not amazement or their amazement that Jesus is after. No. If Jesus wanted them to be more amazed of him than they already were. He would have just calmed the storm. Jesus is after something deeper than amazement. See, amazement can only take you so far. Being in awe of something can only take you to a certain point. It cannot take you to faith. Faith has to come from somewhere, something, someone else. Jesus is after that kind of faith, the redemption of their hearts. You know what I find beautiful about this text is that Jesus sees the disciples without him struggling and out of compassion has a desire to come out and pass their way. That's the means by which he intends to give them faith. To pass their way. Not not, not through direct deliverance of the storm, though that does happen but with the gift of his presence in the midst of the storm. Jesus sees their anxiety. He sees their fear. He sees their tiredness. And the cure, the answer, the encouragement is his presence. That's the sense Mark writes with here. It's a passing by that is more than just walking by them. It's a a walk that is intended to give them, to reassure them of more faith in himself. It's the same pass by that when a troubled and worried Moses goes into the tent of holies before God at Mount Sinai, God gifts him with a passing by to encourage him. Even after the burning bush, even after the plagues, even after the parting of the sea and the provisions in the desert, Moses still needed something deeper something more and it was gifted a moment of presence that turned his fear into songs of praise there is a deep significance in Mark's writing here connected to these ideas Jesus has every intention of being seen by them so as to encourage their faith like it did Moses again it's grace it is grace 
Verse 49. There's a trouble with how we can view God's intentions. Look at this. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. That's very October appropriate. And they cried out. The storm is still going on. Jesus is walking on the sea. The storm did not cease. And the disciples, they see Jesus as he intended to be seen. But instead of their faith being encouraged, they're crying out in terror, thinking it's a ghost. And the text makes sure that every one of them saw him. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't someone seeing. It wasn't hysteria. Twelve men are seeing the same exact thing. And it's just crazy to me that it's not to them the miraculous Messiah, but a water phantom. When you are in the storm, do you have eyes to see Jesus? Does the fear overtake you? Are you better at seeing ghosts than you are at seeing Jesus? Are you better at being paralyzed than prayerful? Are you better at being discouraged than discerning? Are you easily prone to behave in seasons like this? Like you've never tasted the mercy and grace new every morning that God provides. Do you operate under the forgetfulness that each morning does not belong to you and yet you receive it gladly? Of course you do. Of course I do. We do this all the time. Just as the disciples did. They missed the point. We don't see the beautiful experience of grace. And neither did they. They shouldn't be terrified, but they are. Jesus doesn't meet them with an eye roll. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, y'all still don't get it. No. He doesn't meet them and say, how could you not know it was me? No. He doesn't meet their fear with shame. He doesn't meet their stress with condemnation. No, he is patient. And he is kind, and he says to them, take heart or take courage. Don't be afraid. He, <laughs> he calms them, not the storm. He calms them, not the storm. Don't miss this. He, he doesn't calm the storm. He calms them. He doesn't reassure the waves of his might. He reassures the disciples' hearts, and he does so. And he does so with the mentioning of who he is. He says, it is I. He says, it is I. The English fails us here. What Jesus is actually doing is he's actually taking the name of God in this moment. He's saying, I am who I am. I am who I I am. The same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same one who holds all things together, the one whom all covenants and promises rest in, the same one yesterday, today, and forevermore, I am. And then what does he do? He gets in the boat with them. Oh, God, give us eyes to see this. The I am invades their space. 
The I am invades their space. He gets into their fear. He gets into their stress. He gets into their chaos. And immediately everything comes. Family, take heart. Be encouraged. The I am has invaded your space. When you're at the end of a tough day, remember the I am has invaded your space. When your marriage is at a fracture point, remember the I am has invaded your space. When you face disloyalty in your friendships, remember the I am has invaded your space. When your health is attacked and your body feels frail, remember the I am has invaded your space. This is the grace of God in all of life, the grace of God in every stormy gale. This is the grace of God for you right now in this place to realize the I am has invaded your space. I'm going to close with this. Y'all sleeping. I got to go home. Verse 51 says he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mark, Mark tells us in response to this, the disciples were amazed. Amazed. But then Mark, Mark does something very rare. Mark doesn't give us a lot of commentary on things, right? But Mark gives us commentary here. He says, he tells us why they were just amazed. But before I give you that, I want to I take us back to the beginning of the study. There is a significant difference between amazement and faith. There is. Amazement is when something happens that doesn't fit your categories. Okay? It's a cognitive response to not being able to cognitively respond. You understand what I'm saying? I am amazed when I go to SeaWorld that there's a 25-foot, 10,000-pound, weirdly beautiful killing machine doing tricks at the command of a 5-foot-4, probably 100-pound woman. I don't have a category for that. That's amazing. Faith is the commitment of your heart to a reality that shapes the way you live. The way I live is not changed at all by what I witnessed at SeaWorld. At all. The amazement only took me so far. Once the show was over, I got in my car, drove back home, gave my dog a treat for being a good girl while we were gone. I'm the same person. That, the amazement did not change my life. Sure, though. You can have a self-generated faith in something, right? Someone may one day see that show and make it their life's purpose to be a trainer at SeaWorld. We exercise that muscle every day. You all sat in chairs presuming they were going to hold you up. You put faith in the chair. We, we exercise a sort of man-made faith. But the faith that Mark is showing us here is a faith we cannot create. It's where faith and amazement collide. For the disciples, they only have an amazement. They hadn't learned from all the miracles of Jesus. That's the commentary Mark is giving us. He's saying they were amazed because they still didn't get the loaves. They hadn't learned from all the miracles. They didn't learn from the loaves that we studied last week. They absolutely, here's what happened. They understood they understood cognitively that, that somewhere near 20,000 people were fed from five pieces of bread and two fish. 
They, they had a cognitive understanding that that happened, but they failed to grasp. They failed to understand the point beyond the miracle. They failed to see Jesus as the bread of life, the one who broke every piece of bread for every single person there as his body will be broken for every single person there. To the disciples, this was just another marvel, another miracle. This is why when they were sent away to Bethsaida, that is why they were sent into a windstorm. That is why they panicked out of fear when they saw Jesus. If the disciples understood what happened during the loaves, they would have known Jesus to be a sovereign king who controls his own creation with authority uniquely his. But the understanding here is not theological. It's not theological. It does, that doesn't sound like us, right? We know. We think theology saves us. We think the facts create heart change. We think our solutions are all intellectual. But Mark is telling us over and over that they are not. The problem of understanding is not theological. It's existential. It's a matter of faith. You may say, Justin, I'm a believer. I have saving faith. I've trusted the wonderful grace of Jesus in my life. And so I ask you then, family, are there times still in your life where you value other things more than the grace that saved you? Are there times when, like the disciples, the measure of your faith is misplaced? Do you live a life more amazed than faith-filled. The family feel, feel that conviction. Feel that conviction, but not shame or guilt. Do not hide in fear. Not a literal hiding, but a spiritual hiding. Cutting yourself off from silence and solitude with the Father. Not practicing presence. Not engaged in the community of faith. I offer you these words from Paul Tripp. He says, the deepest moment of suffering of Jesus on your behalf was not physical. It was relational. It's that the moment on the cross where the father turned his back on his son and Jesus in the deepest human grief possible cries out, why have you forsaken me? Family, Jesus took that rejection for you so that you would never have the back of God turned towards you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took your place, your punishment, your sin, and nailed it away so that you have access to the Father as sons and daughters so that the I am can invade your space and give you the faith you need to see him more clearly in all the storms of life so that you will see his son more beautiful today than you did yesterday, more kingly today than you did yesterday, more full of love and light for you than you did yesterday yesterday so that you can sing great is your mercy towards me your loving kindness towards me your tender mercies I see day after day forever faithful towards me always providing for me great is your mercy great is your grace would you stand with me this morning